0: To the people of Kiribati, climate change is an existential threat. This is an island nation in the Pacific. It's a string of atolls about halfway between Australia and Hawaii. It has a population of about 100,000 and is known for its vast tuna stocks. But climate change and rising sea levels are making much of Kiribati uninhabitable. It is a country that is facing extinction and not in some distant future. This is happening now. My guest today, Anote Tong, served as president of Kiribati from 2003 to 2016. President Tong is well known in international circles for being a powerful advocate on behalf of people living in small island states that are on the front lines of climate change. And in this conversation, we discuss some of the steps he took as president of Kiribati to ensure the survival of his people, and this included purchasing land in Fiji as an investment for the future of his people. What I found so interesting about this conversation was learning how President Tong's advocacy in international forums has evolved over time, and how this existential threat contributed to President Tong's decision to create what is the world's largest marine sanctuary, the Phoenix Islands Protection Area. I caught up with President Tong from his home in Tarawa, which is the capital of Kiribati. We spoke via Skype, and he describes a recent king tide, which is not a term I'd heard before, which left a particularly devastating path in its wake. My conversation with President Tong is presented in partnership with the Global Challenges Foundation, whose aim is to contribute to reducing the main global problems and risks that threaten humanity. Last year, the Global Challenges Foundation held an open call to find new models of global cooperation better capable of handling the most pressing global risks. In May this year, at the new SHAPE Forum in Stockholm, the top proposals will be presented publicly and further refined through discussions with key thought leaders and experts, and a $5 million prize will be awarded to the best ideas that re-envision global governance for the 21st century. President Tong is a Global Challenges Foundation ambassador, and in the conversation, we discuss this prize and why new ideas for global governance are important for the future of small island states like Kiribati. I've posted a link to the Global Challenges Foundation on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with President Anote Tong of Kiribati. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Oh, okay, let me begin by giving a bit of a, a geography of uh, what uh, Kiribati is. It, um, they're essentially very low-lying atoll island countries. And of course, the uh, atolls are very narrow strips of land. Uh, they're, they're, they're essentially islands which have emerged from the, at the top of uh, submerged seamounts. And so the land area is very limited, very narrow strips of land. In some areas, it's, uh, you can see both sides of the, the sea from the lagoon to the ocean side. And uh, the, the wider sections would be usually not more than, uh, on average, not, not, never more than a kilometer. And so the, the, the level of vulnerability is quite high. That on average, about two meters above sea level. And I think that is also, that's even a bit generous. And so uh, at any time, they're very vulnerable to any changes in the weather pattern. Whenever there is a, um, uh, a spring tide, a, very, a king tide, we just had experience a king tide at the beginning of uh, this month.
0: Uh, what is a king tide? I'm not familiar with that term. What is that?
1: It's a, t- it's a very high tide that we experience um, every once in a while. And um, so for this year, a king tide that uh, will have happened has happened, but there there's still more t- high tides coming up. And of course, every second week, we get the high tides. And so um, when we get these high tides, we always hope that we don't get uh, the winds blowing. Here, we, our strong winds are about 30 kilometers an hour. Anything much above that gets, begins to get a bit dangerous, especially if they coincide with the high tide. And so that is generally the geography, the structure of the islands. The, the islands are spread over a very large Section area in the center of the Pacific Ocean, um, straddling actually, uh, I think we're the only nation straddling both the, uh, the international dateline, because we're in the east and the west of the international date line, and also north and south of the uh, equator. So there we are. Uh, with a total, we have a 30, 33 islands, very small islands, with a total land mass of uh, around 800 square kilometers. Now, compared to that, we have a, a huge ocean area of something like 3.0 million square kilometers of ocean. And so that is uh, that gives generally the kind of um, uh, uh, what it is we're talking about. We're, we've got a very large ocean, but very small land
0: area so so we're speaking in in february and you just mentioned you had a particularly you know high kim tide as you called it a term i wasn't familiar with but what what happens when you have those high tides plus the wind combination uh that you just described as being dangerous how does that danger manifest itself
1: well and when there is a king tide coming there is an announcement a public announcement to warn the public to be a little bit careful because um what happens is things that don't usually happen happen okay you get the water coming over the uh, areas which are normally uh, above the water marginally above the water and uh, whenever that comes uh, that coincides with some relatively moderate to strong winds we have problems okay yeah. and so uh there is always that happening it's it's
0: so like people's we, ha- people's houses flood, flood. Yeah,
1: they do. They uh, sometimes they, they they flood into homes, and uh, people have to pick up their stuff after it, or while it's it's happening, so that they they don't lose they they get um, the whatever they've built to protect their homes. They, they, they the water comes over it, and so that's been almost normal. Okay.
0: Um. So you, uh, I was looking at, are in your seventies. You're a grandfather. Um. I'm curious to learn how your experience of climate change in Kiribati has evolved over time and how these changes have been manifest in your lifetime. Like how did it used to be that it's not now?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, let me say that, uh, all of these experiences, we've always taken them in our stride, uh, believing, believing them to be part of the, 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 the normal cycle of events. Okay. We, these things these kind of things have been happening some of them a bit more severe than recently and so what we are seeing a lot of is um, a loss of uh, land a lot of erosion and uh, so there's been a lot of uh, investment uh, both by the the government and also by the people trying to protect their property whenever the king tides come okay now over the period of my in my young days when i was going to school in one of the out islands there was a village which I show people as they come I in. There used to be, there once used to be a village which was highly vibrant, a lot of energy, a lot of people, one of the larger villages on the island. Now that is gone. That village is gone. And um, there is nothing left. The people have moved to another part of the island and to some extent dispersed to other villages. And so that is happening. We have uh, settlements, communities in uh, different parts which get flooded every once in a while whenever that's at the King Tide that I was talking about. These communities get flooded, but they always expect that the water will go, okay? And so that's been happening. Um, uh, we've had some uh, more than severe uh, erosion. Some in some communities which I have visited, the, the what happened is the water has broken. The seawater has broken through to the the, the freshwater lands, and uh, in the process, destroyed all of the food crops in the in the the freshwater pond. And, and around it, of course. And also contaminated the, the freshwater lands. Now that's going to have an impact on how the people will be able to continue to, uh, to, to stay to, uh, to on those islands.
0: When you were younger, you know, years ago, I mean, did that happen with as much frequency? Did, for example, the freshwater supply, uh, get as threatened as frequently as, as it seems to be today, as you just described?
1: Uh, not to my recollection it could it could well be the case, and i 've got to be quite frank here. it could well be the case that they did happen, but were not reported with with the modern communication it 's happening but what what we are getting is um in the in parliament in the, my my time my times in office uh, in parliament um, uh, parliament members of parliament are bringing these issues to Parliament for the attention of government, and so we 've spent a lot of resources trying to protect uh, uh, public infrastructure. We we could not protect uh, private property because we don't have the resources, but we have done that, and so it's coming. It's not something that uh, that's getting less. It's something that's getting more frequent, which would indicate that it, it's the problem is getting worse. From my own experience, I I see uh, trees, full, full trees, which would have been there for the last sixty seventy years, and they've been destroyed because of the what happened with the um, the, the seawater coming in and uh, killing the plants. With uh, uh, on the edges of the islands, the coastal, coastal areas, you see these coconut trees falling down, uh, row by almost row by row. Okay, and and that is happening. It's very evident. And so all of all of these things, normally we would take it as something that would happen and uh, with, um, we would recover from. But I think we've got to take all of these events in the context of the science that's coming forward. And um, this is, uh, I think, um, a lot of the things that we've been experiencing, we we never associated it uh, with anything else. But now with the science that's coming forward, there is a strong correlation to, uh, between that and uh, what the science is saying.
0: Um- so you are, are someone who's known around the world as both uh, a powerful moral voice uh, about the implications of climate change, but also someone who has taken some very concrete measures and steps to uh, protect your people and, and your islands from the worst effects of, of climate change. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you as as an individual, as a person, and how you uh, became president, and how you decided to uh, become a, a public servant and the kind of background in which you grew up and so can you tell me just a, a little bit about your family and how you got into politics
1: yeah i'm just like anybody else i guess i just <laughs> got into it but um i i think the getting into into politics was perhaps something that i'd always been um uh pushed into it without realizing it i you know as i i i, I grew up pretty much during the colonial period and uh, underwent education abroad um uh, at secondary level and then university. And of course, um, coming back from an environment where everybody, there is there are no masters, there are nothing, and coming back home was a bit of an experience for me and I think also a bit of an experience for the colonial masters who are not used to uh, these young people, uh, local people, uh, sort of being able to be eloquent to, to express their views and to some extent uh, argue. And so that was refreshing both of myself and uh, I think that the colonial people with whom I was working. And um, I think from that period, there's always in me, the feeling that, you know, we need to do things for ourselves and uh, we can do it for ourselves. And so the, the, maybe these were the seeds of uh, being a public minded. I worked in the public service for uh, a little while. I worked abroad as well. And um, I think how I got into politics was, um, I think, inevitable because as some as somebody who had, would have been one of the first few educated at the time, you know you know what's going on, you ask questions, and you you challenge the administration, colonial administration, and always believe that uh, things can be done in different ways and uh, when um, when we achieved independence in nineteen seventy nine i I worked abroad for a short while, but uh, whenever there is a debate, you always wonder uh, really was that the way to do it? was that the answer to the question? And I think, um, in, in so doing, I was participating in the politics from outside. And eventually, when I, I took the decision to go into politics in 1979, I, I, I guess I, I fit it in very well.
0: Was there a moment, uh, that you recall that just compelled you, a, a debate or an idea or, or what inside just, just sort of, uh, any specific moment that compelled you to want to enter politics at that point in your life in 1979?
1: Uh, certainly. Uh, because, um, you know, from 1979, we became uh, uh, an independent country, and um, sometimes there are critical issues. There was a time when there was a, um, a highly international political issue regarding the, uh, the, the licensing of the Russian fishing vessels in our uh, oceans, in our exclusive economic zone, and uh, there was a lot of political debate going on, and much of it was politics, of course. But uh, and, uh, it, it, to some extent, I, I commented outside. I was then working for the University of the South Pacific. But I, I wrote a commentary on it, which I thought was balanced. And the fact that I got criticized from both sides, I think, uh, really confirmed that I was balanced. But it it was uh, a commentary to say, the, the, to try and um, uh, enumerate the, the both the, the good and the bad, okay, without making a judgment uh, on it. I, so... that that was the time and then I began to ask questions internally. I know my wife kept asking me, you know, you're debating with yourself. (laughs) And um, so, there were these moments and eventually when I I did ask my wife, I think I'm going to go into politics. And I think the only comment she made was that I always wondered when you would do that. (laughs)
0: Like you said from the outset, it was 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 foreordained.
1: In in a sense, I guess. And I think there was, I'd always had the sense of deep sense of responsibility that um, as one of the first few people educated during the colonial period uh, we had the obligation to try and do things for our people try to um, make express their views because and, uh, our people are very conservative very very quiet and uh, they, they tend a lot of their rights really have been trampled on over the years without any 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 comments so Maybe it was my upbringing in New Zealand and university when it was pretty much a militant period in New Zealand. Maybe that was it. But I think um, it was necessary. I I was in New Zealand at the time when the the first dam was being built and uh, there were these um, environmentalists protesting. At the time, I couldn't really associate myself with that because the environmental issue really was not an issue uh, in my generation.
0: But but you, of course, have since come to uh, adopt and, and be a, a, a global icon, I'd say, for environmentalism and, and climate change. Um, and i had been interested in learning your experiences at that first United Nations General Assembly you attended and addressed as uh, the head of state of, of Kiribati. Can you that, – that was, I believe, in 2004. Well, that, is that right?
1: That, and that's right, 2004, because – I, I was still finding my feet in 2003, and I just didn't have enough time to, uh, even to form a government. I came in with a minority and had to work to, to build a, uh, a government which would stay in, in office. And so I didn't attend the 2003, but I did attend the 2004. And of course, like any leader from a small island country, and stepping out of our world into a totally different world was absolutely intimidating. But then uh, it was important that we had to express what it was that uh, our voice, because after all, this is where we all are supposed to have an equal voice.
0: Well, I and, mean that, that that's what's so interesting. Listening. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what's so interesting to me. I mean, you know, you have an equal voice, an equal platform, as say. President George Bush at the time, um, you know. Yet you are from a, a small island state. He's, of course, you know, was the president of the United States at the time. How did you overcome the kind of intimidation that you said you would sort of naturally feel coming into this this forum?
1: Well, I think it's um, it's the, the issues that you get involved in because there is a time when uh, it's, it's no longer about yourself, how you feel, but it's about the issue and uh, how you feel about it, and uh, you. you you just focus on it, to exclusion of anything else, including your own uh, sense of uh, nervousness and discomfort. And uh, you get so absorbed with what it was that you needed to communicate. And uh, knowing that it, um, you're right, knowing that uh, you know, the message that you're trying to communicate is valid, is, uh, need, uh, need, um, there has to be uh, justice to be addressed, and uh, I think that's how I felt. And uh, And ever since then, I've been doing that. And, um, you know, I think we, one of the things I realized is we've been standing on the sidelines for far too long. uh, And the expectation, and I think maybe the usual uh, post-colonial mentality that somebody else, your colonial masters, would deal with everything for you and would do the right thing for you. Well, that's not been the case. And so on the climate change issue, and on a number of other issues, they're not relevant to us, nor are we relevant to the, to the international community. And so we had to find, for me, we had to identify an issue that was important to us, and that had to be brought to the attention of the, the international community. Because it can never be tackled at any other level, because it's a global phenomenon, it's a global challenge, and uh, can, only be, can only be addressed at that level. So that's when I got really stuck in. Because I, I've been reading a bit of what's going forward from the IPCC.
0: Uh, I was just saying that the IPCC is, of course, the internaf- Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change, uh, which you uh, just yeah, referenced. Yes, yes, of
1: course. Yes, of course. Yeah, you know, but what they were coming up was very really serious for us, and we had to look at it and um, really understand it. I think what was, what was still, what still remained to be confirmed was whether it was actually in, uh, human induced. And whether there was still, because there was still a lot of controversy uh, on the science. And I, now I, I learned that it's, um, that controversy might have been perpetuated and provoked by the, um, the, the those with a vested interest in not dealing with the climate change uh, challenge. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, there was no other way but to, to, to raise it and keep raising it and be a little bit of a nuisance, mm-hmm. but a nuisance that cannot be dismissed. Because uh, in the early stages, and I think if you have bothered to read uh, my statement at the United Nations, you will know that maybe my first first few statements were a bit angry, very frustrated. And then I learned that uh, nobody listened. They can easily dismiss you if you are irrational, and um, and so I I had to become what I called in my own terms a rational radical. Because what you're saying. Is uh, morally justified. It's very, very true, and they cannot it cannot be dismissed out
0: of hand. So that's and that's so, very interesting to me will... because because I I have seen some of your statements early in the year, and you were out there. Your 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 rhetoric was was sharp. Um, you know, uh, you know, condemning the industrialized world for um, for for you know condemning your people. And one of the interesting evolutions I've noticed is how. You took some of the the moral um, certainties that were included in things like the IPCC report, which stated that you know climate change was man made. It was not made by people of Kiribati, yet the people of Kiribati are suffering at the hands of this external force. Um, yet in that process, you, you you've you've harnessed this kind of moral high ground, and I, I just am really interested to learn how you made that that switch from sort of being uh, sort of more more radical, as you said, and more more sharp tongued to um uh to, to to sort of embracing the moral high ground.
1: Right. Well I uh, I think it's a lesson that I've learned in the in the process. Um politics is an interesting <clears throat> profession because um sometimes being so sharp is not being so effective. It's actually being heard is more important than being sharp. And I think quite often we communicate uh, our emotions rather than our message. And uh that that has been a problem for for me initially and uh I guess for most people, where we tend to to, to communicate, speak emotionally, and um, quite often, not a lot of people can uh, associate, relate with your emotion because they're not feeling the same as you're doing. But they can see a sense of uh, the the moral and the justice of what it is that you, you're saying. If it's if it's logical, it's going to be very difficult to dismiss. And I think uh, uh, that's how I I I try to do it. You know, not not uh, people even if. you're correct, absolutely correct, and blaming people for what's happened, people don't like to be the finger pointed at them. What they would like to do is, you know, just not point it too directly, but let them be part of the solution rather than the problem. And that's, I think uh, you will notice, that's been the way that I've evolved in my my presentation.
0: And and can you describe how the Phoenix Islands Protection Area fits into... Um, that theory of change that you just described about how you know adopting and, and conveying the moral high ground and the logic of the kind of moral and existential threat that you're facing is translated into something like creating this massive ocean reserve that that you did in your in your tenure
1: well you'll you notice in my statements that that always been in order to for, for the global community and what I was asking uh, countries to do was to um, to to make sacrifices and to to make a commitment, and so uh, in 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 reinforcing that uh, demand or that call for other nations to do that, it uh, I, I said we cannot uh, sacrifice our lifestyles, our life standard of living because we don't have a high standard of living. We cannot cut our emissions, but what we can do is contribute to the um, the biodiversity of this planet and. Uh, and that would constitute our our sacrifice to humanity. It's a it's a real contribution in terms of uh, the call made in, in Rio for the, to achieve biodiversity, which was something like 10%. And it's a, but more importantly, it's a challenge to say that uh, here we are doing something in order to simulate some similar action by from other countries who can even afford who can even afford even more sacrifices to make because they got so much, and they can make sacrifices, small, maybe, but much larger than what we are doing. So it was a challenge to the international community. It was a loud, loud statement to the international community. But at the same time, it was a, it was a realistic um, response to sustainability of our fishery resources because we, our, the reports were indicating that um, the, the two of the species of tuna uh, prevalent in our part of the world was becoming stressed, and so we needed to make that take that initiative because we needed to be relevant to the world because we, without the world knowing it and perhaps without us knowing it, are a food source for the rest of the world in terms of the tuna that is consumed in the world after all in our, in our region, the western and, and central Pacific, we host as much as sixty percent of the tuna resources which so far remain sustainable uh, relatively healthy, but with the pressure that's um, has been uh, directed now to our part of the world, the fishing pressure. That is going to change radically and very fast without if we don't take early action. So that was really also a very, a very serious attempt at trying to uh, to conserve uh, the resource that is in our custody.
0: Can Can you maybe take me back to to like the moment when you sort of? had this idea or decided to turn this idea into a reality of the, the Phoenix islands protection area. What's the um like, where did that just the idea of, of creating a giant Marine protection area around, you know, basically the size of, of California come from um, was right. it like a moment or a discussion what? like, like, how did it come to be? No, it, it's, it's an uh, innovation, I, think, I should say, that many people around the world are yeah. now emulating and very, I think, pertinent to a conversation a, about new ways to do global governance. So I'm, I'm just sort of interested in like right. how, how you came up with this idea and how your team came up with this idea.
1: Well, it, uh, I, I've been involved in fisheries for a long time. Um, in my younger days as secretary to the minister of fisheries, later fisheries, um, minister. And, uh, so there's always been that concern. Um, uh, but uh, the, the opportunity to, to, to do this via the designation of the Marine Protected Area was, uh, came up from uh, the discussions I had with uh, uh, some uh, people from the Conservation International and uh, the New England Aquarium. they have been doing some research work in the Phoenix Islands and said, oh, it's, a, it's wonderful stuff there. And I wonder if you were interested. And I said, OK, let's talk about it. But it was really an opportunity to, to, to do something uh, very, very concrete. Uh, and of course, I had to be careful that it would pass through the political process locally. Uh, we, we depend extremely, uh, very much on the, um, on the revenue derived from our uh, fisheries licensing. So uh, we had to be careful that uh, we could do it, not only uh, in, 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 by through legislation, but that it, that uh, we can convince our people that it, it would work. And so we went through a long process of evaluation of this. It's, it's quite a long process. And uh, by the end of it, we came to agreement. And so, but I, I must uh, say that it was one of those things that um, happened due to the partnership with NGOs. And I think this is something that's becoming more and more the norm these days the, the participation and the contribution that. Uh, uh, NGOs can make to government. Sometimes it's in too much government, and we should listen more to the civil society, the non-government organizations. And so, the partnership that we we formed with the Conservation International and uh, New England Aquarium uh, was very much uh, a catalyst in making this happen. Then I had to go through the difficult process of taking it through Parliament initially to Cabinet, and then through Parliament. And uh, and so, I, for us, it was. Um, it was an uh, amazing uh, uh, process. Initially, it was a very small area around Phoenix Island, the, um, the one of the islands in the Phoenix Group. But then when we discussed it in cabinet, there was this surge of um, enthusiasm to do even more than what we originally designated. And so the agreement that we had with our partners, uh, they did not know, but we went on and declared what now is the Phoenix Island's protected area. Constituting something like four hundred thousand square kilometers of ocean, and so it was so gratifying to see that no, uh, that the whole cabinet was um, was interested, was uh, behind it, and then of course we took it to, to Parliament, and uh, because we put it put legislation uh, to put it in place, and uh, gladly it it passed, and now we have what we have today, and. Uh, I am glad if it has motivated other countries to to do it well and good. And I think uh, it's not something that we anticipated happening, but yes, we saw the uh, subsequent events. And uh, we're very glad maybe
0: to be a part of that process. Yeah, okay. so so that that's a really interesting point and something in my reading of the uh, protected area that that I didn't realize that really this was a catalyst for a movement across the broader Pacific to create these uh, marine protected areas including one outside uh, of of the coast of of Hawaii as well, right?
1: That's right. Mm, that's right. Um we so- we had a, we have we have a sister arrangement with the that very difficult at uh, the Marine Protected Area from Hawaii, it's got a very difficult name, but uh, yeah. we we're trying to share experiences so that because it's not an easy process, especially when you you start off and you don't know how what to do about it, and uh, you're also subject to a lot of criticism that you're not doing it uh, the way it should be. I don't know what, how what it should be, but uh, it, I think the act of designating it in the first place is not easy, and uh, I think we will learn, and I think we are learning in the process
0: so uh, another uh, challenge I, I've, I've would imagine is presenting itself in in having created this giant area is that you know you, you're a small country with a giant area and lots of, of very valuable tuna fish how do you prevent illegal uh, fisher fishing vessels from entering that area and I'm wondering if there are opportunities for global cooperations and and sort of new New shapes of global governance to try to combat that problem of uh, illegal fishing in in your protected areas.
1: All right. Well, uh, as you know, we, we have limited capacity for doing things, and uh, but our capacity to do what is uh, within our jurisdiction, we can do that. Our capacity to to provide the uh, the hardware and the technology is very limited, and so. You know, we I've often been asked that question, and my response has been in, uh, on occasion saying, "No, I think we would like you to make that contribution because we've done the hard part. We have made uh, uh, We have designated the area. We don't have the capacity to do the rest of it. Why don't you do it? Because after all, it is humanities. It's not. It does not. Uh, doesn't belong to the alone. It's part of the global uh, uh, commons, or what? We, what used to be. So I believe we should uh, contribute." We we we've, uh, we've been able to to uh, arrest a vessel which went in, but I think what's important is that there is there is the technology available. Like I'm, I'm we've been working with uh, uh, organisations with the capacity to do it. We were advised that it it used to be extremely costly, but the cost is coming down, and so hopefully there can be this partnership again. With um, organizations with the capacity to do that, but satellite surveillance proved uh, that on the night, the day before we actually closed uh, any fishing at the beginning of 2015, um, the area in by around in within the, the designated area was full of fishing vessels. They had been fishing there difficult because it is one of the more fertile fishing grounds. But on the day that um, the area was declared closed. There was no boat. And so I think it, it's good to see that, that people are law-abiding citizens, and uh, uh, hopefully they will continue to be that. But uh, we have we are put into place very heavy penalties, and uh, hopefully we can, with the assistance of our partners in providing the surveillance, we do have uh, um, regional arrangements with other countries in the region, including the, uh, the surveillance capacity of Australia, New Zealand, even France. And so we welcome that, even the United States, the united states uh, we have an agreement with the united states Coast guard to hmm. once in a while go in <laughs> and so it's, we cannot do it alone and uh, you know this these kind of partnerships are very useful
0: i uh, I'd also like to ask you a, a bit about another somewhat controversial decision you took uh, as as president, which was to purchase land in Fiji uh, for climate refugees or, or people, uh, Kiribati from Kiribati, Kiribati who would be displaced, uh, by rising sea levels. How, how hard a decision was that?
1: You know, it's, uh, you know, buying land in Kiribati is really something that's happening uh, on the, on the large scale, you know, especially people from the out islands. Uh, because there are fertile islands and there are not so fertile islands. And the trend has been for the, the people from the, the more drought written to buy land in the more fertile islands. And so buying land uh, is not a new phenomenon, and it continues to happen until today, especially in the main uh, area of Tara. So buying land uh, is, not, is not something that is normally controversial. I think it's been made controversial politically,
0: but in reality,
1: it is what most people in Kiribati aspire to doing. You know, I think there is no question in my mind that it, if you offered uh, somebody some money to, to buy land somewhere in Fiji or in New Zealand, they would jump at uh, the opportunity. There is no doubt about it. But the controversy arises because uh, there's been an interpretation that when, when, I, when I had it done, it was done to move our people. OK, I've never said that. And if you who. If you go back, I think what uh, it's the media that's been saying that I said that, okay. But uh, the reality is, is, I've always in my response, I've always been very careful, and my my answer has been to questions, why did you buy land, and I've said, oh, it's it's an investment, which in reality it is because we have a a, a, a reserve fund, a sovereign fund that's been running around half a billion to close to a billion. And it's been go- going back and, and uh, uh, in going up and down. And we did lost, lose a lot of um, funds uh, in the financial crisis that have taken place in 1970, in uh, eighty eight, And then in 2008, mm-hmm. we lost hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it, in my view, that was an investment. But I think it's the subsequent interpretation. And I have allowed people to make that interpretation although it might have been my own desire, okay? But I've never said it because of the sensitivity of saying that we bought land in Fiji so we could move our people to Fiji. What would the Fiji people say? What would the Fiji government say uh, without us making that formal approach for permission to do that? And so it's uh, it's been very sensitive, but it, it was uh, once raised in, in parliament in Fiji. But I must thank uh, the, the, the the thinking and the... The mentality in Fiji, even at the political level, that it was not argued. The only question was, was what kind, of, what land is it? Is it native land or is it crown land? Crown land or is it freehold? And that was the, the answer. The government answered, it's freehold, and that was the extent of the concern.
0: Well, well, I mean, of course, we have me, a lot of. People. Let me perhaps ask you more directly. Then, I mean, do you think that your country, uh, as we know it, will will exist in, in 50 years? Say, when your your grandchildren are your age, will they be able to, to live um, in Tarawa where, where you're living? Will they need to find uh, a new life in New Zealand or in Fiji?
1: Well, the, um, the answer is subject to certain things happening, because the IPCC report is very clear. We will be submerged within the century. There is no question about that. And even the IPCC report um, is now <clears throat> perhaps regarded as being too, very much an underestimate because of the acceleration of what's happening. And so without very, without radical, significant radical adaptation measures to raise the islands or find some way to accommodate the people who would stay here, there is no choice but to go somewhere else. That is the, the brutal reality. Whether we like it, how emotional we might be, that is the reality. And I know we. Could, there are people who continue to answer that in an emotional manner. I know in, around the region, my colleagues around the region, they've been emotional. And I can tell you it is an emotional reaction. And you don't want to say, yes, we, we have to go. Nobody wants to admit that. But the reality is this. Unless we can come up with ways of maintaining climate resilience, then our choice, we just have to go. So the question is, and uh, I admit this is the the work that I've been, I initiated when I was towards towards the end of my term in office, and uh, I've been trying to to continue that work, and uh, it's to try to find ways of building uh, climate resilience. I've acknowledged the reality that we will not be able to build up the islands, all of the islands in Kiribati, because there's too many of them, nor is it likely that the resources required to do so will be available. And so it's about uh, reconcile myself with the possibility of maybe one or two islands raised, which would be able to accommodate uh, the people. How many people? That's the question I don't know because I don't have the the, the, the what the the design one the, the details because that was that study was being carried out as I was as I was leaving office, and so I have not seen those uh, studies.
0: So so and so. Perhaps I should say, I should ask then, facing this kind of existential crisis, the, um, the, the best last hope is to do some mitigation and consolidate what remains of a homeland around a few islands in the atoll?
1: I believe that's the way it's going to be. And I think what I had hope to happen was uh, we can do a pilot project so we can see that it's possible. I have no doubt it's possible. It's just a question of getting the right design and uh, getting the resources. I mean, the, the resources are there, they're just being directed elsewhere. And the question is, who would take responsibility for, for providing the resources? And so part of the work that I've been trying to do since has been trying to put together this concept in collaboration with the other uh, uh, low-lying countries like Tuvalu, Marshall Island, in, in, in the Pacific area, region, uh, the Tokalaos and what have you, because their future like ours will be serious question. But I, I at the same time, I am hopeful that some work can be done to raise the island so that at least our people can continue to stay on at least for the next 100 years, beyond the, the next century.
0: So... so, so- that, I should say, leads me to, to maybe my, my next question, which is how is is your work with uh, a group like the Global Challenges Foundation as its ambassador and advisor on, on the new Shape Prize, um, how has your experience um, informed what you're bringing to this, this prize? What, what are you looking forward to when the forum convenes in, in May around these kinds of issues?
1: Well, I've been going around looking around for solutions what this initiative the Global Challenges Foundation has started is something which really runs along pretty much very much along the lines of what I've been working on and it's it's wonderful to be a part of the uh, the, what? The, 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 the challenge because it's going to, to answer, answer the question okay you know how do we remain uh, as a species? particularly in terms of the the climate change challenge. Uh, What is to be the future of humanity? What is to be the future of people like mine uh, who are now having to face it much earlier than anybody else? And so really um, it's being able to to maintain some sense of confidence, some sense of optimism that solutions can be found. It's just a matter of finding the solutions. And so the, the initiative with the New Shapes Prize it really that, trying to find innovative solutions to problems with, uh, which appear to have no solution. Because the challenge we are facing, and I can, I can tell you that from my own experience, for a long time, I agonized. Because there were, uh, there, uh, my greatest fear was to be asked by my people while I was in office. You know, we're hearing this about climate change and that our islands will be submerged given the, the projections made by the, 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 the IPCC. You know, what, what? what is going to happen to our grandchildren and our children? Because at, at one time, I had no answer. Because it, uh, I think one gets paralyzed into uh, inaction. And so you stick with this emotional response by saying, denying it. But I, I had to come to terms with that reality and say, no, we have to find solutions. And so solutions have got to be so radical. They don't exist in any thinking. It doesn't follow... The linear line of logic that you would normally—it's not business as usual. You got to discard all of that and think in entirely new terms. Whatever we do, whatever our society is going to be uh, in response as we respond to climate change, it's going to bring about some very radical changes to the life that we know today. And we have to acknowledge that, and we have to to gear our thinking to um, you know build the, the energy to try and go forward because so- you know the um, it's it's it, 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 people say it's either stay or go. No, it's not. It doesn't have to be either one or the other. It can be both. It's well. And that it's, is what I've been
0: saying. It's interesting to me that in the face of this existential crisis, you're finding optimism is in the sort of potential solutions uh to this uh, to to this crisis. I mean, are do you have any? ideas or hints where those solutions might come from or like what, how that optimism might, might manifest itself.
1: Oh, oh. Yeah. You surely, you, you know why you, if you've been keeping track of what I've been doing, you should know that I've been, I've been speaking to the Japanese about floating islands. The, the company that's been working on this, they came to visit me uh, some years ago and they are developing quite credible solutions, except for the price. The price is a bit high for us, but (laughs) you know, you know, is there a price to sovereignty and uh, you know the, the future of our people? I I've got an answer for that, but unfortunately I don't have the resources to to respond. I've also I I connected with the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, I I approached. I met the the people in New York and uh, at the at the General Assembly in 2015, and then uh, they came in early 2016, uh, did a study, and. Uh, the people they came with were the same engineers who built those islands. they Dutch engineers who built the islands in, in Dubai.
0: Mm-hmm. The Palm Islands. I okay, think so called,
1: yeah. the Palm island. Yeah, And I also worked with the, um, the, the, the South Koreans. they done some work. And so they did, independently, they did studies, hopefully. And uh, the New Zealand government was also involved because they, they did some work in Tuvalu, some pilot project to raise the island. And so we were interested in what uh, they could all do. As I said, uh, those studies have been done, but I've not seen the studies because I've since left office.
0: So can, may, may so I, ask, I don't know what's happened. May, may, may I ask maybe to conclude, in terms of like, uh, global governance and how we organize ourselves as a planet and as, as you know, governments and, and people, what innovations exist there t- in order to, to sort of deal with a problem that your country faces?
1: No, I think it's just the experience of having done it. Uh, Whether that it could apply directly to our situation, I don't know. But uh, I think um, it's, for me, it's simply an engineering problem and a resource problem. We can come up with the resource. There is no question in my mind that we can do anything. And so it's just a matter of putting something that in a package that could be presented for financing, either from the Green Climate Fund, plus other contributions for those who would wish to make that contribution.
0: So it's a technical so, problem, really. It's, it's, it, it's, I, I, so that's probably it's a the source of your optimism, mm-hmm. then, is that any technical problem presumably would have enough solution if there's the political will and the resources and, and the motivation behind it.
1: Yes, I, I, quite frankly, I've, 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 I've even dared to believe that we could become a relatively affluent society and uh, once we have done this, we've got huge fisheries resources, as I've I already said. There's um, hundreds of, oh, maybe in the billions of dollars of uh, tuna being taken out of our waters. But we, at the moment, we get less, less than 10%. We want to change that. And if we can change it in partnership with uh, the right partners, then maybe we can take out the loan for a few billion dollars and, and use the, 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 what, the revenue from the higher rate of returns from our fisheries to pay it off. And so I'm hoping that what happens with the the new administration, they can pursue this. It's daring, it's very bold, that you you really are stepping off the edge and it's not normal thinking. But uh, likewise, I mean, somebody like Richard Branson is thinking about building a hotel in space. So why can't we not build a bow island so that we continue to to be able to, to, to stay on it?
0: And and finally, can I ask, what are you looking forward to in, in the Global Challenges Forum this coming May?
1: Well, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see the kind of uh, innovation that's coming forward. I think it's always, I find it extremely exciting to, to see new ideas, and some of them ideas that perhaps you've been uh, struggling with and somebody has defined it in a different way. And so human innovation is limitless. But at the same time, I believe we must never build The arrogance to believe that we can do anything destroy it and then rebuild it and i think that goes in terms of what we're doing to the planet we're going to destroy it and keep doing it in the hope that we'll find the technology to provide the answer because it has not provided the answers for us so far
0: but yet yet that's where the answer lies according to what you just said is 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 in like you know technology and political will
1: yeah, but I think the answer is, the real answer is not creating the problem in the first place.
0: <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, well, okay.
1: So- so, but I think that in our arrogance, we, we create the problem in the, in, in the expectation somebody will find the technology to solve the problem.
0: Uh, well, Mr. President, it's been an honor and just absolutely fascinating hearing from you and, and learning your story and, and how you've, you know, tackled this this problem. Oh,
1: you're very welcome. Andy. Okay. Bye for now. Great talking to you, man.
0: Goodbye. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to President Tong. That was great. It was also probably the longest distance phone call I've ever made in my life, but it sounded pretty good. Um, Big thank you to the Global Challenges Foundation. This is the newest content partner with the podcast. And so you can expect in the coming weeks and months some more interesting episodes with people as fascinating as President Tong and on topics that relate to new ideas for ways that we organize our world to confront some of the biggest global challenges. So expect some more great content from this partnership in the near future. And if you are with an organization and you are interested in exploring a content partnership with the podcast, just send me an email. You can use the contact button on dispatchespodcast.com and we can have a discussion about what it all entails. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.